0: All right, okay, let's get started. Uh, We are in a series called 316 because of course, we're taking like two months to talk about John 316, which is the most famous verse in the Bible. It's not the shortest, it's not the easiest one to memorize, but it's the one that a lot of people know about, especially at football games, which is like today. Okay, so let's go over the verse that we've been going over for the past uh, month and a half now, or it hasn't been a month, I don't know. For God so loved the world, That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the yellow part right here are the parts that we already talked about. If you missed it, you could go back to our website or to YouTube and and catch up on what we've been talking about. I hope that some of the studies of some of these words here have been eye-opening for you. Like the one that's like, that just, you know, because I thought was familiar with this verse, but when we went over the word one and only son, I was floored right? Because I'm like, yeah, what does that mean that he's his only son, right? And turns out, only son, you know, usually a father and a son. Father's older, son's younger. But if they're both eternal, how do you determine who's the father and who's the son, right? Turns out there's a lot more to that, and we talked about that last week. Today, we're gonna be looking at this one word, whoever. Whoever. Now, every week, I do this because I went to com and I found out that talking about Greek words and Hebrew words makes the past look smarter. So here is the Greek word for whoever. Uh, this is, if you guys know Greek, this is pi, alpha, right? Um, this is pas, P-A-S, this is how you pronounce it, pas, okay? And the word pas does not mean whomever. It means, like, every kind of. It means every kind of, it means every kind of, like, everything, all. The word all is the word pas, all, okay? So when the verse says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that all, everybody, no limitations, any breathing being, right, fits into this category, which begs the question, did Jesus really mean every kind of person, every single person, right? There must be that somebody in your life, maybe an enemy, maybe a political figure, that you're like, yeah, everybody except, (laughs) I don't know about that guy, right? Or maybe a leader of another country, you're like, that guy, Seems to play dirty. I don't know. Or maybe that, you know, or maybe that person who lives a lifestyle that I don't agree with. Maybe that person, right? But I know people like me, we are usually in the in crowd, right? That's when Jesus said that he loves all people, he means us. He's using hyperbole here, probably, right? When he says all, he's talking about the people that I agree with, that I think should be let through the gate, right? Well, what we're going to (laughs) do, you already know I'm being facetious here, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at three passages today. First one's going to be in the Old Testament, and then we're going to be looking at the New Testament, which is a story, if you read the New Testament version of the story, and if you lived back then, you'll have been like, oh my gosh, that reminds me of the Old Testament story. So these two stories are meant to be read together, or one is supposed to spark that reminder of the Old Testament story. And then the third passage we're going to look at is basically the whole book of Acts. But I know you guys are familiar with Acts, because we took about a year and a half to go over that book with you. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of Acts Hopefully by the end of this sermon you understand that when Jesus meant every kind, he meant like all, like everybody. Doesn't matter if you hate this person. It doesn't matter if you disagree with the way this person's living. It doesn't matter their sexuality. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter anything. It's like all people are included. So let's start with the Old Testament passage. We're talking, uh, we're, we're going through the book of Numbers today, and in this book, passage in Numbers, there's a character named Moses, okay? And a Moses pulled out all these people from Egypt out of slavery, and now they are in the middle, middle of a desert, and people are like, what do we do, what do we do, what do we do? Moses is like, don't worry, God has spoken to me. I'm the guy, the mediator. I'm the guy that's going to help you get through the desert. But God's not just interested in getting you from point A to point B. He's also interested in making sure that you are a person a tribe, a nation of people who know how to behave like you are the people of God, right? Now, in this long journey, there's like thousands, like we're not just talking to tens of thousands. We might, some scholars think there's hundreds of thousands of people in the desert now. They're traveling and of course, you know, every once in a while you'll pitch your tent and you know, you get in your neighbor's backyard, you know, a temporary backyard or whatever and you get on each other's nerves, right? And when you get on each other's nerve and you think that you're both right, Who's going to resolve this matter for you? So at this point in the story, Moses is appointed as judge. So the people come to the tent where Moses is, where, you know, God's tent's right there. The camp where everybody else is living in is over there. Moses is hanging out with God over here. There's an issue. You come up to Moses, and then Moses, acting as a judge, will say, well, you're right, you're wrong, or hey, you're both right. You're technically right, but you need to get along, so why don't you give him three sheep, and this person will give you a goat, and then we're all okay. So he was playing the part of a judge. And that's a cool job, right? Except when you have hundreds of thousands of people, you eventually are like, ah, I, I just want to quit. You know, I'm not even getting paid for this thing, right? So, um, that's the context here. And then eventually, Moses, he was a wife. His father-in-law, so his wife's dad, comes and visits Moses one day, and Moses looks like really tired. He has bags under his eyes. Like, father, I, father-in-law, I just can't do this anymore. And he's like, well, let me tell you how you could do this. You, you're going to create a system. Okay? Because you can't be the only person that's doing this. So you should gather around you, like, 70 elders, give them the authority, you know, like, God's inspiration, and so they'll be able to make the proper judgment. And then you're, like, taking off your, you know, burden. Like, you're sharing your burden with the people around you. And Moses is like, you are a genius. I'm not just saying that because you're my father-in-law, but I think this is going to work, right? That's the scene right here. Okay, here we go. Long intro. Sorry about that. Moses brought together 70 of their elders— And had them stand around the tent. Remember, there's a camp over there where everybody's living. And there's this one big tent here where they believe God's presence dwells. He called 70 elders, and now they're all standing around the tent of God. Okay? Let's keep going. Then the Lord came down in the cloud. So the cloud comes upon the tent and spoke with them. And he took some of the power of the spirit that was on Moses, on him, and put it on the 70 elders. It's like, it just symbolizes that you're taking the authority of Moses that God gave him, and it's being distributed to 70 people. Great idea, right? Now, while this is happening, I guess somebody's counting, like, one, two, three, four. There's supposed to be 70, right? I count 68. There's somebody missing. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, of course, it's the dads that are not present in this story, had, sorry, bad joke, okay, (laughs) had remained in the camp. Okay, so there's two guys who are still over there, okay? Okay? They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. They don't tell you why, and we're not going to speculate why, but they just probably maybe forgot. I don't know. I said I'm not going to speculate, and that's what I'm doing. Okay, they're there for some reason. We don't know the reason, okay? This is the, okay, now, if you want to get the feeling of what's happening here, it's like camping out to get tickets to a concert oh like the super bowl like you're like I you know we've been camping out we've been out here for hours and the line is moving slowly and I see people cutting this is so bad and you finally get to the front and you buy the tickets and you're like finally yes I got my tickets seven hours of line waiting totally worth it right but then you find out the people who are the two people who didn't show up who didn't win line with you they got tickets somehow too okay this is what the story is let's keep reading Yet the spirit also rested on them, the two that didn't show up, and they prophesied in the camp. Okay. So the, by prophesy they're talking about, they're able to make proper judgments that God would have made had God or Moses been the one that was counseling you, right? So now the 70 elders around the tent are saying, oh gosh, we just got this authority. I can't wait back to go to civilization and help the people out there. They wanted to be the first ones there to make a difference in their community only to find out that out of the 70, two of them are still over there, and they got the authority without even them knowing about it. They even wait in line. And now they just started doing their thing. They just, they just started prophesying. They started saying, anybody have any, any issues here? Well, I, you know, God gave me the authority. I'm going to, you know, rule over, you know, whatever dispute you have. And so the people who wait in line are jealous. Oh They're like, we thought we were going to be the ones, Right? So, a young man ran and told Moses, oh, back. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Right? Like, tattletale, right? Like, oh my gosh, look, there's two guys over there. They didn't even come to the tent. They're over there doing their thing already. Like, man, I thought we were going to be first. And they're like, no, they're doing it already. So, next, okay, there you go. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. They're prophesying, please stop them. They, didn't even, they weren't even here for the orientation. They're doing their thing already. Like, that's not fair. But Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What's happening here? Moses is saying, wait, what's the goal here? That you are the first ones to go over there and do your thing? Or is it that we're doing this so that our village or nation or tribe will be blessed? What's the end goal here? And is your jealousy getting in the way of that goal? Just because you were the ones that waited in line, right? And you got the authority, in a way, you started feeling superior, you started feeling better. And like, look at us, the amazing people that's going to save our, our, our tribe. Yes, that's us. Hear us roar. And there are people, you know, and they probably didn't say the quiet part out loud, but really on the inside, they were thinking like, no, we actually like this idea because it made us feel important. Meanwhile, Moses is like, I wish everybody had this ability that way we don't have to rule and be judged over every single person. They could, do, they could rule over themselves. I wish everybody had this ability to discern what was right and what was wrong. So there's this idea of when God says all, and some people say, no, 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 not technically, not all people, there might be a sense of jealousy that might be there. Or maybe you heard Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus, say something like, we are the only people who are really saved. We are the only real disciples of Jesus. And then when they see God working some amazing stuff over there, they're like, oh, no, no, well, that, we can explain that away. Why? Is there a bit of jealousy in there? Maybe there's a sense of superiority you felt knowing that you were the only exclusive ones that had access to God. That's what's happening here. So when God says all and we say, no, not really, technically not all, we have to check our hearts and say, like, well, what is, why am I so defensive about this? So I promise you we'll go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, something similar happens, but this time it's Jesus, right, the Son of God, walking around this earth, and he has 12 disciples, okay? And Jesus, he's like about two and a half years into his ministry. His disciples have been following him for that long, meaning they haven't been to their home in two and a half years, right? They've been kicked out of villages, they've been yelled at, people have threatened their lives. So they've had a pretty crazy two and a half years. And at this point, Jesus is like, All right, guys, it's time to head towards Jerusalem because I'm about to get crucified, and that's how the story is going to end here on earth, uh, for me at least. And so uh, let's do this. And the disciples are like, Okay. But as soon as this is over, we're going to be like at the top of the chain, right? Like we're going to be Jesus' number one disciples, right? It's like, yes, let's go. And on their way, this is what happens. John, one of the disciples, says, Master, we saw somebody driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. It's like, Jesus, we walk with you. We live with you. we, uh, We were persecuted with you. We starved with you, we you know, we dealt with grief together, and you've given us authority to cast out demons, right? It's like, yeah? Well, there's somebody over there who's doing it, and they didn't show up. You know, they, they weren't with us the whole time. So why should they be allowed to do it? So we try to stop them, <laughs> right, Jesus? Now, how did Jesus respond to that? And he's like, Oh, by the way, the reason we try to do that, because he is not one of us now Jesus is like well let me get this straight casting out demons the last time I checked that was a good thing right (laughs) right why are you trying to stop a good thing Jesus' response do not stop him Jesus said for whoever is not against you is for you why would you stop a good thing God is doing something good and we're like what matters to us more than good things happening in this world is that we are the ones that cause the good things to happen in this world. And in a way, they get really defensive. And it reveals their true colors. It, tr- it reveals that, you know, we're not in this to bring heaven on earth. We're in this so that we could be the stars. We could be the celebrities of the people who, as the people who bring in heaven onto this earth. And Jesus is like, you know what, that. Heart of yours is actually directly opposed to what I'm trying to accomplish, which is to make the world a better place. If the reason we can have a better place is because you want to be the one that brings a good world into this world, a good thing into this world, then you're not really for us. So I made a little chart here so that's easier to understand. So here is um, Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus' disciples in the New Testament. And we have Jesus and Moses. I should have probably switched that around because then Moses and Joshua would be. OK anyways. So when it came to first, like the immediate reaction, initial reaction, when they saw other people doing the things that they should be doing, how did Joshua and his disciples react? They, they first, they showed like fear, like, "Oh my gosh, I think we're supposed to be the ones." And they showed control. Let's stop it. We can't let these guys take the limelight from us. We've got to stop it. How did Jesus and Joshua, I mean, Jesus and Moses re- react to this? They were like, oh, man, I just wish there was more people like that out there. Do you see the contrast here? It's not just their initial reaction that we should be looking at. We also look at, like, well, maybe their tribal identity started to rise up, right? So how did they deal with that? Well, when we look at these two over here, there's this us versus them mentality. Well, there's us, the people who follow you, Jesus. And there's those people over there who didn't jump through the hoops to get to where we are right now. That's the way they saw it. How did Jesus and Moses see it? It's like, no, 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 this is good news, guys. Us just got bigger. If there are people over there doing good, that's more of us. That's great, right? So that's, right, you see the difference here? Another thing that gets revealed here is their theology, what they believe about God. Let's see how um, Joshua and the disciples, how they view God, what's revealed about what they believe about God. They believe that God works within our boundaries. Here is what we believe God to be, and so if anything good were to happen, it hap- happens within these walls, right? But what did Jesus and Moses reveal about what they believe about God? They say that, you no, know, God works wherever love is required, there's somebody suffering over there, then we're to make good things happen over there so that the suffering is a little more alleviated. But, 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 Lord, you're supposed to walk in, the, you're supposed to work here and here. Like, we have to be present for something good to happen. Yeah, but I'm not constrained to your box, dude. <laughs> like, I'm over there. Like, I need to help those guys. And when I do something good over there, why can't you celebrate? But because it was not us that did that. So their theology is revealed. Another thing that's revealed is their emotion. How they felt about this. When something good happened over there, Joshua and the disciples felt threatened. Like, insecurity started to well up. Right? Like, oh, does this mean that we have a lesser place in the kingdom of God? Maybe Jesus doesn't really see us in that, you know, we thought Jesus really thought we were important, but maybe we're not that important. Like, there's this sense of insecurity that starts to well up. What did Jesus and Moses, how did they feel? They felt this sense of longing, wouldn't it be great if everybody was able to do this good? Wouldn't it be great if there was nobody in this world that were demon possessed, that nobody was sick? Wouldn't it be great if everybody had the wisdom to be able to judge what we should do to, to bring reconciliation to this, this community? Like, wouldn't it be great if everybody was like that? Wouldn't it be great if pastors didn't have to do pastoring and everybody was just led to Jesus on their own? Wouldn't it be great? I mean, for me, I'm like, well, I'll lose my job and then, right? But that's exactly what he's talking about here. Right, by the way, when, when, after we die, you know, we're in heaven, I won't have a job, you know? And, but I should be celebrating, I should be longing for that day, right? And this is what they're talking about. So do you see the difference, how one side sees it as, you see a good thing happen, they're like, but it wasn't me, and they feel threatened, and over here, they're like, no, this is good, we should, have, we should, we should be praying for stuff like this. So the question remains, when Jesus said that all are included, that he wants all people, right? Did he really mean that? As it turns out, this is the question that people wrestled with in the book of Acts. After Jesus died and he rose again, and they're like, so who does this go to? And they're like, well, I think this message goes to whoever Jesus loves. Well, how big is his embrace? Well, let's find out, because the book of Acts is basically a story that chronicles for us how big the embrace of God really is. Okay, so let's take a look. So here's a map. I love maps, and I'm sure you missed it too. Okay, now this is Europe, and this is Africa down here. We're going to start our story over here. Next slide, here we go. Right there. That's Jerusalem right there, okay? Jesus was, was killed. He was murdered. He, was, he died right there, and he rose again on the third day. And after that, his 12 disciples, well, one of them, Judas, he, he died. He killed himself. But then they recruited another guy in, so there's 12, And they they locked themselves up in this room because they were afraid that everybody was going to come and kill them because they killed Jesus. And as they were there, they started to sense something was different. The Spirit of God came upon them, and they looked out the window, and they realized that that there were, like, huge gusts of wind, and then there were, like, flames on top of people's heads, and I don't know if that's literal or figurative, but it was there, right, that they saw it, and people started speaking different languages, and so the leader of the 12 Peter is like, we need to... Capitalize on this moment, we, got, we should do something. So they go outside, and Peter's like, Everybody, I have a sermon for you, right? And Peter preaches, and then it says in the Acts, 3,000 people said, We believe in Jesus. And like, well, that's kind of cool, right? So clearly, and most of them were men, clearly, this message is for the Jews, particularly men. But as it also turns out, around this time uh, of the year, there's a festival happening in Jerusalem, so there's all these people from around the world who call themselves Jews, who were dispersed years ago, that come, came back to Jerusalem just for that festival, and so there were some people who were Jews who were not native to that land, people who came from Greece, people who came from Rome, right? They are all there, and then there were some older people who showed up, and some of them were, were widows. And so they're like, I think this message isn't just for the Jews who live in Israel. I think it's also for Jews who, are, who live outside of our nation. So let's minister to them. And then as they did that to these Hellenistic Jews, that's what they're called, they came to know the Lord. And they're like, oh, I guess Jesus' embrace is not limited to people who live in this country, but people who are Jews, but they live outside the country. Okay, so God's embrace is a little bigger than we thought. Another thing that happened here is that um, eventually the religious rulers, they're like, oh my goodness, uh, these Jews, they, they were looking at this whole thing happened. They're like, their group is growing bigger than ours. Yeah, we, we should be worried about that. And so they persecuted the first group of Christians, and they all dispersed to different parts of the world. And so, next slide, over here you can see some people went a little north. And that area in the north is called Samaria, which is like the, you don't want to go there if you're a good religious person because this is where all the compromisers hang out. But one of, the, one of the people of Jerusalem who was dispersed, Philip, he travels north, and then he comes across this guy named Simon Magus. Magus means like magician or sorcerer. And he's like, clearly when Jesus said all people, it doesn't include that guy, right? And so but he starts talking to him. And eventually Magus is like, actually, I want to be a follower of Jesus too. And Philip is like, wait a minute, there's Old Testament passages about sorcerers, but I guess Jesus said all people, so uh, welcome to our group. I guess Jesus' embrace includes Simon Magus of Samaria. Welcome, right? And then all of a sudden, Philip was taken away, and he reappeared in this place, and, and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, quick thing, Ethiopians are from Africa, so they're way out, they're outside of the continent, Right? And not only that, Ethiopian eunuch eunuch implies that they were born male, but they were castrated at a young age for religious reasons. And so at that time in this world, they didn't really have a word for them. They didn't call them male or female. They had their own category. Today we will call them non-binary, okay? And as a matter of fact, the word eunuch could also be pointing to people who were men or women, but acted the opposite gender. So eunuch actually covers a big category here. And so here, here's Philip, it's like, there's ultimate Testament passages that I think speak against this. So when Jesus said all, I don't think it includes him. And then he, they, skits, they, they start talking. And as they start talking, they realize, wait a minute. This Ethiopian eunuch asked me if he could get baptized. And it's like, there's no pool here, sorry. And the Ethiopian eunuch is like, well, there's a pond right there. Can I get baptized there? And the line that comes after that is really interesting. He says, So what is keeping me from getting baptized? At that point, Philip could have quoted a bunch of verses from the Old Testament because there are verses about that. And Philip is like, actually, Jesus said all. Anybody who wants to follow Jesus is welcome. So he's like, I guess, I thought, you know, his embrace was like Jews, but then it was like Jews from other countries. And, oh, I guess magicians. And I guess you too, Ethiopian eunuch, right? Like, different continents, different, you know, like all those things, right? It's like you are part of God's embrace. Then all of a sudden, around this time, uh, um, maybe a little bit after this, in that place called the Jezreel Valley, which, next slide, it's a little bit up there, right? We're not moving that far out yet, okay? There was this guy named Saul. Saul has been murdering Christians, like straight up, like throwing stones at people, that kind of thing. And not Philip this time, but there's another guy named Stephen, who was up there, right? And then, oh no, actually Stephen was a little more south. But like Saul killed Stephen. Um, But in Jezreel, there's this path that takes you to this place called Damascus. Okay, so in the Jezreel Valley, imagine if you're living there, and all of a sudden you hear a knock on the door, and you open it, and dun dun dun, it's Saul. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm a Christian. Oh, I should run for my life. Should I run for my life? Should I not? but then you realize he's blind. Like, oh, what happened? And Saul says, I was just out there and I had this amazing experience with Jesus. I just saw him in a vision and now I'm blind. But Jesus told me to come here. And now this person who's living in the Jezreel Valley is like, wait a minute, so uh, what am I supposed to do? He's a murderer. He's been killing my people. But Jesus said, All okay, I guess I'll pray for you. And so he prays for him and the scales from his eyes fall off and he can see again. So he's like, I guess it involves people who've been murdering my own people. Jesus, is your embrace that big? Like my brothers and sisters were killed by this man, but you're saying he's part of our group too? Around that time, another place called Caesarea, next slide, right there, it's a port city. There's a guy by the name of Cornelius. He is a general, he's a centurion, of the Roman army who are the Romans Romans are the people who came over and took over the world imagine if somebody came to the United States and said this land belongs to us now not you anymore and if you don't pay our taxes if you don't do what we tell you to do we're going to crucify you you're, you're dead but Peter one of Jesus' disciples he had a vision and he felt called to go to Caesarea and meet with this guy named Cornelius he's like are you sure I never stepped into a Gentile home before but you told me that it's all. So I'm going to step in to your house. Oh, I didn't burn up. This is great. Okay, let's, another step, another step. He meets Cornelius. They have a great conversation. They share a meal, which is a big no-no back then. And if you read the book of Acts, it even tells you that they even had a sleepover, right? So much that the Jewish community was angry with them. And so at that point, Peter's like, so I thought it was just these people that God's embrace was, God was embracing, but it turns out he's also embracing the leaders of the, uh, the people who are occupying our land. Wow, Jesus, are you sure this is... Are you sure this is what's happening? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household. And the same thing that he witnessed back to, back to Jerusalem, you know, where the wind blows and the fire, you know, the speaking languages, that happened in Cornelius' house. He's like, well, no doubt, you know, that's exactly what God is doing here. I guess he's part of our family too. It's hard to put my arms around them, but Jesus' arms are around them, so I guess I have to do the same. Jesus, did you really mean everybody? It's like, yes, everybody. Now, remember that guy named Saul? Eventually, he, you know, he had two names. He had a Jewish name and a Gentile name. Gentile name is Paul, and for the rest of the story, he's known as Paul. And so Paul, he eventually recruits these people. He found out that there's Christians around the Mediterranean Sea, right? We have Saul, who is, you know, Paul, who is from a place called Tarsus. There was a guy named Barnabas who is from this island right here. We have a guy named uh, Lucius who is from here, you know, Africa area there's a guy named Simeon who's actually from over here on the western African area which is outside this map so I couldn't show you right but they, he recruited all those people they all showed up that area right there and they started the first multiracial church and from there they're like oh this is great you know we're going to bring heaven on earth in the city this is cool but you know what this message needs to go out which one of us should go out and then the, the other guys were like Paul we think you should go you're the smartest guy here You understand Roman and Jewish culture. You should do this. So, next slide. Paul goes out and he starts talking about Jesus to all these places. Places that Jews would never go. But because Paul was convinced that when Jesus said all, he meant all. When he said pas, he meant yes. That means every kind. He goes out there. Now, the reason why the last thought I put up is right here, for this slide at least, is because this is a place called Thessalonica. This is the... the the area that connects Asia Minor to the rest of Europe. And he's like, this is so crucial that we plant a church here. Why? Well, because this is where all the trade happens. Okay, but there's a problem. The problem is, when he starts this church in Thessalonica, there's only women. And Paul's like, in my tradition, because Paul used to be a rabbi, in my tradition, only men are allowed to start religious organizations, start synagogues. But he's like, what? Jesus said all, Thessalonica is the first church that was founded by women. And then he's like, all right, you got this right, women? It's like, yes. I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep going. So next slide. So he goes on and he goes to Greece, right? He's entering into a territory where it's like there's a lot of gods and goddesses. They're like, where I came from, there's like one god, right? Here, there's like a pantheon of gods. It's like, oh. And he goes in there and he talks about Jesus and more and more people are like, "Yes, we want to be a part of this," and he eventually makes it to Rome as a prisoner. But while he's in prison, he was ha- you know, under house arrest. Anybody who came and visited him, they were like compelled. They're like, "Yes, you're right. We want to be a part of this movement too." And from there, it spread to the corners of the earth. So, what is the author of Acts trying to tell us? I think he's trying to answer this question: Did Jesus really mean? Every kind, and the way that Luke, the author of Acts, is, is going to answer this is with another question. Right? Did Jesus really mean every kind? His question, his answer slash question is, well, how big is Jesus's embrace? Did he really mean all, or did he just mean you know all in terms of like the people that you thought were all right? Because remember, these people in the first century, they were being stretched oh, come on, these are the people who persecuted us. These are the guys who took over our land. These are the people who took our women or these are the people who took this and that and took our money and we were poor because of, right? It's like, no, them too. It's like, oh, I gotta force myself to love these guys because that's who Jesus loves too. And they expanded and expanded. They stretched and stretched. The first century church grew because of their unconditional love. Now, I thought there was this really cool illustration, and I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but I'm gonna share it with you anyways. But um, C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia series. Are you guys familiar with Narnia? I heard they banned those books in Florida, is that true? Oh my goodness, okay. If you're watching from Florida, no one's watching from Florida. Okay. <laughs> okay, unless you are, welcome then. Um, this, uh, so I haven't read all the books yet. I want to, but there's like The Witch, The Wardrobe, I'm, uh, The Lion, The Witch, The Wardrobe. Is, did I get the order right? Okay, so in that story, there's, there's um, Aslan, who is the lion, who is, is the God character, is the Jesus character in, the, in these books. And there's four kids that go into the wardrobe and they come out the other end and they see this magical world. The youngest one is Lucy. And they met Aslan in that book. Now, the second book, I believe, is Prince Caspian. And they haven't seen each other in between the two books, okay? So in Prince Caspian, Lucy sees Aslan for the first time since the first book. And this is their interaction, and I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes this. Aslan, 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 oh, I don't know how to say. It. Okay, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Like, oh, God, you grew. That's, well, that's because you are older, little one, answered he. And then Lucy's like, wait, wait a minute. He said, uh, like, not because you are? Like, you look bigger, Aslan. It's like, well, I'm not really bigger. It's because you're older. It's like, wait, you're not bigger because you're bigger? It's like, no, I am not. And this is my favorite line. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I love the way that C.S. Lewis worded this because here's the thing. When you are a new Christian, it's very common to think that God's definition of all is actually pretty small. But as you mature in faith, as you become more and more in love with Jesus, as you start to discover that God's love stretches beyond the church, beyond Christians, beyond your ideologies, beyond your tribe, beyond your nation, beyond um, what you find to be comfortable, the more you grow into your faith, the more you discover that God's love is so big that it makes you uncomfortable. A clear sign Of maturity in your faith is when you see god working in groups outside your tribe especially in your enemies and looking at that and say i need to celebrate that even though i don't like those people (laughs) right like i don't agree with that but god loves them and god is working there and be able to identify that that is a true mark of maturity the deeper you grow into your faith the more you mature the bigger you see god the bigger you see his love. So the question I want to ask you guys, what keeps us from embracing every kind like the way that Jesus embraced every kind? When you become like the gatekeepers, he meant all people but not people like you. You have to ask yourself, what, what is it that's making me do that? In the case of the people in the desert, it was jealousy. For Jesus' disciples, it might have been insecurity. Yes, I know, Jesus, you love those people, but not, no, no. (laughs) What could it be? If there's anybody just feel this tugging to just push out, saying you're not part of God's kingdom, what is it? What's causing you to redefine the word all? Redefine the Greek word, pas. Every kind. And whatever it is, we need to repent of that. Amen? All right, let's pray.